0: If you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, open it to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we're going to be in verses 9 through 12 this morning. 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12. And the title of this sermon is The Gospel at Work. Well, I watched a video this week about one particular reason that a lot of businessmen will take potential partners or clients out to the golf course with them uh, before going into business with them. And it's for this reason, to see if they cheat. (laughs) If someone blatantly cheats on the golf course, it tells you something about them. One particular guy on this video shared a story of his wife observing a man cheating while golfing. And she told her husband, don't go into business with this guy. While the husband didn't think it was that big of a deal, he listened to her. A couple of years later, the cheater ended up in prison for fraud or something like that. How people handle little things can often tell you how they'll handle big things, for good and for bad. And while, as Christians, we know this to be true because Jesus tells us so, I believe that the unbelieving world understands this as well. In today's text, we'll see an example of this. How we love and how we work says something to the world around us. The question is this, are we saying something good or bad about the Jesus that we claim to worship? So let's dive into the text. This is the word of the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4, 9-12. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. If you're just joining us, we've been walking through the book of 1 Thessalonians the last several weeks. In the first three chapters, Paul has been reminding the, the Thessalonian church of the gospel. He's been encouraging them to more and to more faithfulness. Last week, we noted a shift where Paul moved to the main reason for writing this letter. He began giving gospel imperative commands in light of the gospel. He told us God's will for us was our sanctification, or being more like Christ. The first area that he called for our sanctification was in the area of sexual purity. Today, he'll continue in that line of God's will for our lives. But he'll shift his focus to our work. And look where he begins. Verse 9. He says, Now concerning brotherly love. Let's stop right there. Now concerning brotherly love. Paul uses this word here for brotherly love, Philadelphia, and this is key. In the past, we've talked about the different Greek words for love, and we've zeroed in on typically agape love, unconditional love, the love God displayed through Christ for us, and the love that we are called to have for another, and even for our enemies. Agape love is love that we're called to have for others, regardless of our relationship with them, whether they're close or not. Philadelphia, on the other hand, brotherly love, comes within the context of family. There's a a nearness, a warmth, and an affection that makes it proper to call it brotherly. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is teaching, and we read this Matthew 12, verses 46 through 50. It says, While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my, bro- my mother? And who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. His point here isn't to dishonor his blood mother and blood brothers. It's to teach the truth that in Christ, we're family, all of us. When when God is our father and we're his children... We're brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, I grew up in a Southern Baptist church. Emphasis on Southern. And growing up, I'd always hear people using this kind of terminology. Hey, brother, how are you doing? Brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so. Full transparency, I thought it was kind of (laughs) corny. No one in the real world talked like that. But the older I've become, and the more that I've come to understand the fathership of God, and the brother and sisterhood that we do have in this church, this way of speaking has become dear to me. Yeah, you can overdo it, where it becomes rote and meaningless. You could also just be doing it because you forgot someone's name. Hey, brother. (laughs) Hey, brother when you call someone brother or sister and you mean it, it's a beautiful thing. The church is God's family. And if you're a child of God, you have brothers and sisters. There's real familial Philadelphia brotherly love here. And there's so many implications to this. I'll just give one. Now, I want you to imagine... You're at your dinner table at home, and your family's sitting around it. What if one of your family members for weeks and months wasn't at the table? They're just gone. What would you do? I hope, out of genuine love and concern, you'd go looking for them. Not because you're taking attendance at the dinner table, Not because you want to make sure that your dinner table numbers are better than your neighbor's dinner table numbers. Not because you're looking to judge that family member for not being at the table. But because you love that person and care for them deeply. The church is a family. Do we notice when one of our brothers or sisters isn't there? Do we care enough about them to reach out? Not in judgment, but in compassion. What if we saw the church not as a place to go to, but as a family that we're part of? That's where Paul starts. Now concerning brotherly love. Then look what he writes next. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God To love one another. I love this. Just like last week, this is meant to be not a rebuke, but it's meant to be encouragement. He's saying, Thessalonian Church, I see this in you. Side note, if I were writing this letter to you guys as Santa Cruz Baptists, I'd say the same thing. You guys have so much brotherly love. I see it. I experience it. It's tangible here. So I ask this question. Where did this brotherly love come from? Paul says that they have been taught by God. Taught by God. Fun fact. Paul, the Apostle Paul, invented this word. theo deductos. It's actually two Greek words, theos, or God, and didaktos, or taught. He smushed them together, invented a new word. Scholars can't find a single place that this word was used prior to Paul using it here in this text, and rarely even after this letter. Paul sees their brotherly love, and he concludes that they must be God-taught. Why? (coughs) Several reasons. Number one, this is who God is. God is love. Romans 5.5 5 tells us this. Romans 5.5, 5, it says, And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. God is love. We are made in his image. He pours his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. We as Christians love because of who God is. Second, we love because of what God does. We just saw this in Romans 5. But God gives us his spirit. And it's not as if his spirit is just hanging out and relaxing inside of us, doing nothing. He's just chilling there. No. He's working. He's producing things in us and through us. What are those things? I'm glad you asked. <coughs> Galatians 5, 22 through 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Do you see that first word? The fruit of the Spirit is love. Love. Philippians 2, verse 13 teaches us, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work, for his good pleasure. When we love, it's evidence that God is working in us. So Paul can look at the Thessalonian church, see love, and rightly assume that they're God-taught that it's God working in them. But it's even more exciting than that. Remember, I told you that Paul made up this word. He did. But most scholars believe that he didn't just pull it out of thin air. He knew Isaiah 54, verse 13. It says, All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. Do you see that? Taught by the Lord taught by Yahweh, God. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, guess what two words are there? The same two words that Paul mashed together in our text. And this text in Isaiah 54 is a prophetic passage about the New Covenant. Check this out. In the Old Covenant... God wrote his law on tablets of stone. But in the New Covenant, he promised to write his law on people's hearts through the Spirit. Do you see where we're going with this? Paul sees the church loving. Isaiah 54 is in the back of his mind. And he sees that they're clearly being empowered by the Holy Spirit, who's producing love through them. This is a clear sign to Paul that the new covenant is being fulfilled. This is a reason to celebrate and to praise God. Okay. So, Paul sees their brotherly love in the church. He's encouraged by the work that God's doing in and through them. Then look at the scope of it all. Verse 10. He says, For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Remember, they're in Thessalonica, the capital city of a large region called Macedonia. Paul's saying not only are you guys expressing brotherly love to those in your own church, you're loving all the Christians in the entire region. This is glorious. Friends, if you know anything about me, you know that I love the local church. I believe that she's God's evangelism strategy for the world. I believe that she's God's greenhouse for growth in Christian discipleship. And I believe we're called to Catholicity. Catholicity. The Greek word "katholikē" means universal. I'm not talking about the Roman Catholic Church here. I'm talking about the universal church comprised of all true Christians across the world. Understand this. I I love Santa Cruz Baptist Church. I love you guys. I love how we do things. I love the specific people that God has brought here and called into membership. But it can't stop there. We're called to love other Christians and other churches here in Santa Cruz and to the ends of the earth. This isn't a call to love everyone who claims to be a church, though. There are those who claim to be churches who don't believe or teach the gospel at all. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. So that's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about churches... That believe and teach the gospel. Christians who are actually God's children. We don't have to agree with them on every point to love them and embrace them as brothers and sisters. We don't have to agree with them on every point to pray for them and to fellowship with them. I'm part of the Santa Cruz County Pastors Network here in town. Do I agree with each of those pastors on everything? Not even close. But we get together and we pray for one another. We encourage one another once a month. It's awesome. What would it look like for Santa Cruz Baptist to be a blood-bought, God-taught, center for brotherly love that then reverberated out to all of the Christians in our region? That's my hope and my prayer for us. And do you notice that Paul isn't satisfied with the status quo here? He's pumped at what he sees in their brotherly love. What does he say next? But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Paul has what's called a growth mindset. He knows that this side of heaven, none of us are fully there. We haven't arrived. None of us love perfectly, or even close to it. But every single one of us can love more and more. Guess what? This, just like last week, is part of our sanctification. It's part of our growth as Christians, to be more and more like Jesus. Santa Cruz Baptist. I, like Paul, see you. You guys are one of the most loving churches I've ever been a part of. You're doing it. And I urge you to do this more and more. Never be satisfied with the present state. Now, just like last week, Paul's going to move from general to specific. He's going to give three commands of ways to love as a Christian. Look at verse 11. He says, And to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you. First, to aspire to live quietly. Aspire to live quietly. Seems like an oxymoron, right? We typically think of someone who has aspiration as someone who's a go-getter, out there getting things done, going hard, nonstop, making waves, somewhat drawing attention to themselves. They have aspirations. One commentator translates this phrase to strive hard to live quietly. But while these two things can seem like opposites, here's what Paul seems to be saying. By quiet, he doesn't mean not speaking, or even restful. He means not intruding on the lives of other people. In 1 Timothy 2, 1-4, Paul writes this. 1 Timothy 2, 1-4. He says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. Why? that we, the church, may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Same word. The point is, we're not looking to be the center of attention. Leading a quiet life means that you're not constantly drawing attention to yourself or making a public scene. Similarly, 1 Peter 3, 1 through 4 Peter encourages believing wives of unbelieving husbands that they might win their husbands. What does he say? They might win their husbands without a word, by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. The concept here is quiet humility. Quiet humility. Understand this. As Christians, we should be bold in our faith. We should know what we believe and why we believe it. We should be able to give a defense for the hope that we have in Christ. But that boldness doesn't have to be always drawing attention to ourselves or constantly in your face. We're not called to be a nuisance or to unnecessarily stir up problems. We are called to make it our goal to aspire to live quietly. Second, Paul writes... To mind your own affairs. To mind your own affairs. In today's language, we might say, mind your own business. This will be connected to Paul's third command here in a little bit. But what apparently was happening there was this. You had these people who were no longer working. But in their idleness, they were going from house to house to house. And getting in everyone's business while not focusing on their own. Paul's saying, stop it. Mind your own business. They were busybodies who constantly meddled in the lives of others, gossiped, caused division. They were causing issue in the church and in the society at large. Maybe at some point or another, you've had a neighbor like this. They know everything that's going on in the neighborhood. And they're happy to tell you about everyone's business. How many of you see that as a good thing that's bringing unity to the value of the neighborhood? Even non-believers roll their eyes at this and tend to look down upon people who act this way. To act this way as a Christian is detrimental to unity in the church and to our corporate witness to the world. Quick point of application. It's my opinion that social media has thrown gas on this fire. Because of social media, we know everyone's business. We like to talk about everybody's business. Did you see what so-and-so posted on Facebook? Can you believe what they did? Are you going to respond to what they said? If you don't, you're complicit. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't moments to speak out against something publicly. But I think those moments are a lot more rare than we might think. I'll just tell you personally, from 2020 to 2022, pastors specifically had enormous pressures from all angles to post about everything that hit the cycle within 24 hours. End of the day, I'm not called to pastor Twitter or Facebook. I'm called to pastor you. I'm called to mind my own affairs. The same is true for you, Christian. You don't need to be involved in or to respond to everything. I'm not saying you you shouldn't be informed about the world. But if you know everything about what's going on on Twitter, but you're not invested in your own kids and the real lives of people around you in your local church, something's wrong. Paul says, mind your own affairs. You can see how this is connected with aspiring to live a quiet life. Third. Paul says, and to work with your hands, as we instructed you. To work with your hands. So, is Paul here making a distinction between manual labor, working with your hands, and mental labor, like teaching? Not necessarily. But we shouldn't discount that either. It's important to understand that a Greek way of thinking was that manual labor was somehow less than work with the mind. That's what Greeks believed. They looked down on those who worked with their hands. Tim Keller, in his book Every Good Endeavor, commenting on this outlook, he writes this. Work was a barrier to the highest kind of life. That was the Greek way of thinking. Work made it impossible to rise above the earthbound humdrum of life into the realm of philosophy, the domain of the gods. The Greeks understood that life in the world required work, but they believed that not all work was created equal. Work that used the mind rather than the body was nobler, less beastly. The highest form of work was the most cognitive and the least manual. So it's possible that that Paul here is correcting this kind of thinking by telling Christians to not be afraid of or embarrassed of doing manual work. It's a good and godly thing. But what seems to be the primary context for Paul's command is this. A number of these Thessalonian church members believed that Jesus was coming back imminently, like today or tomorrow, any moment type of thing. And because of that, they just stopped going to work. They were waiting around for Jesus to come back any minute. They actually fit the bill for, quote, being so heavenly-minded that they were no earthly good. We learn later in this letter, and in 2 Thessalonians, that they had become lazy and idle. Now, important caveat to all of this. Paul isn't speaking to those who can't work due to injury or age or other legitimate circumstances. He's speaking to those who won't work. They're not unable to work, just unwilling. This is what Paul seems to be rebuking. He's calling the the Christians in this church and in their world to work hard. Why? Several reasons, two of which we'll see in verse 12. But before we go there... I want to remind us that work isn't unspiritual. Work isn't unspiritual. It's not as if what you do on Monday through Friday is worldly and secular, then what you do on Sunday is spiritual. Work isn't just a necessary evil. No, this isn't God's intention for work. Work is a good thing that I'll remind us was there before the fall of man. Sin entered the world in Genesis chapter 3. But God called man to work and keep the garden in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. In Genesis chapter 1, God is at work bringing beauty and order and flourishing to the world. It's an amazing thing. Then he creates man in his image. God calls man to work as a reflection of who God is. And there are two equally bad ditches that we can fall in when it comes to our work. On one side, you can make an idol out of your work. I-D-O-L. You can make an idol out of your work. Work becomes God and your identity. It's all you think about and what controls you. The other side is to become idle, ideally, in your work. You don't see its purpose. You're lazy. You do subpar work for the pay that you get. Understand this. In the Christian worldview, work has purpose. It's valuable, and it brings dignity to you as you do it. This is one reason why we pray for a different sector of work every Sunday in our pastoral prayer. Your work matters. Without getting into too much detail, God even builds work into his people's benevolence fund to the poor. Look what God's word says in Leviticus 23. Leviticus 23, verse 22. It says, And when you reap the harvest of your land, You shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Notice that God didn't say, reap the whole harvest, get your wealth, and then give a handout to the poor. He says to leave it there so that they can work the edge of the field and gather the gleanings. There's an element of work, even in the benevolence given. Look at what Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 10 through 12. He says, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Now, don't hear me saying that we shouldn't be generous to the poor. Deuteronomy 15, Proverbs 19, and the Bible as a whole are clear on that. We should. My point is that work gives dignity. And that God's benevolent structure includes work for those who are able. So Paul commands us to work, because work is good, it's purposeful, and it's from God. But in our text, he explicitly gives two reasons for what it is that he said. He says, live quietly, mind your own business, work with your hands, verse 12, so that, or for the purpose that, you may walk properly before outsiders, and be dependent On no one. He gives two reasons. Let's take them one at a time. Number one, so that you may walk properly before outsiders. To a watching world. What does it say about Jesus if they look at the church and see a bunch of lazy, idle people who are always in everyone's business and trying to draw attention to themselves? To a watching world. What does it say about Jesus if Christians aren't productive members of society, but merely leeches who always take but never give? It distorts the gospel. It lies about God. Hear this. The content of the gospel itself may be offensive to some. It's the stench of death to those who are perishing, according to 1 Corinthians. But your work ethic shouldn't be the stench of death. It shouldn't be a stumbling block to the gospel of Jesus Christ. On the contrary, Christians should be known as the best employees in the world. At different points of Christian history, this has certainly been the case. In fact, in 1905, sociologist Max Weber coined the term the Protestant work ethic to describe Christians who worked with discipline and diligence. People should be able to watch how you work and know that there's something different about you. Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 through 24, Paul writes, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for man, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. We've already discussed this. True evangelism doesn't happen without words. According to Romans chapter 10, you must speak the gospel in evangelism. And how we work commends or adorns the gospel. If, if your boss looks around the company and Christians are the best workers there, That commends the gospel and gives you an opportunity to share the good news. On the other hand, if you're terrible at your job, you're known for idleness and laziness, you're known for always being in other people's business, and then you try to share the gospel, how do you think that's going to land? Not well. That doesn't commend the gospel. F.F. Bruce says it this way. He writes, Non-Christians must be given no pretext for thinking that Christians were unprofitable members of society. The church could not discharge its ministry of witness and reconciliation in the world unless its members adorned the gospel with their lives as well as their lips. The way you work says something about the Lord. What are you known for? You spend most of your time at work during the week. Don't waste it. Walk properly before outsiders. Your workplace is a mission field, and it's ripe for the harvest. So be the best nurse, the best chiropractor, the best police officer, the best mechanic, the best teacher that you can possibly be for God's glory. Second, Paul says, and be dependent on no one. And be dependent on no one. You might say, wait a second. I thought as Christians we were supposed to be dependent. And in two ways, you're right. As Christians, we are called to be dependent upon God for everything. We're not independent creatures just making our own way in this world. Every good and perfect gift comes down from above. James 1. And we're also called to be interdependent with other believers. Sharing our burdens. Even sharing our resources. Taking care of each other as occasion may require. 1 Corinthians 12 and several other places in the Bible refers to the church as a body with each part needing every other part. In this regard, to try to function as an independent would actually be sin. That's not what Paul's saying here. What Paul is saying here is this. If you're able to work and you don't, you quickly become parasitic and burdensome to the church and to the world. Again, we're not talking about those who are unable to work, but those who are unwilling. That is unloving. Remember the context here that Paul's saying this. Paul began with the concept of brotherly love, Philadelphia. To unnecessarily burden another by depending on them for sustenance, when you're able to work, is unloving. John Stott says it this way. He says, true, it is an expression of love to support others who are in need, but it is also an expression of love to support ourselves so as not to need to be supported by others. We often do not consider that our own work is an expression of love to others because we do not need to be supported by them. There are real needs in the church. People who need financial help. People who need meals. People who need clothing. Widows and orphans who need to be cared for. It's good and right and loving to help these people. But to be able to work and still dependent upon others is to rob resources from their proper place. Further, most people that are are fully dependent upon others don't meet the needs of others as givers themselves. Paul wants our way of life to adorn the gospel. Jesus came to this earth, and he wasn't a taker. In fact, the only thing he took was our sin. He went to the cross and took our sin and the penalty for that sin upon himself. He gave his life in our place to save us eternally. He was buried and rose from the grave three days later so that he might give us his righteousness. He gives us the gift of eternal life if we'll repent and believe in him. Jesus Christ is the ultimate giver. In closing, I want us to see the structure that Paul has laid out for us the last two weeks. If you look at verses 1 through 12, there's really two charges that Paul gives us as the church. Number one, to please God more and more. Verse 1, to please God more and more. 2, to love one another more and more. Once again, (coughs) Paul didn't come up with this structure. Hear the words of Jesus. Matthew 22, verses 37 through 39. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Love God, love your neighbor. Grow in sanctification through obeying God's will. Love your brothers and sisters through aspiring to live quietly, minding your own affairs. And working diligently. All of this says something about, about God to a watching world. This is the gospel at work. Let's pray.